When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place, an hour is late. Send the crowds away so they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. I suspect if we were asked today what it means to be a Christian, we might not be surprised to hear stories of good works, perhaps personal experiences of conversion or illumination, maybe something about prayer or worship or various disciplines of piety. But we would be surprised, I think, if we were told it all has to do with food. And yet in both the Old and New Testaments, more than a little space is devoted to eating what you should eat, what you should not, what it means to be hungry, what it is to be filled. In the Bible, there are stories of abundance, of manna in the wilderness, of quail dropping out of the skies, of water gushing from a rock to drink. Paul spends a good deal of his various letters dealing with questions of food. John begins his gospel account of Jesus' ministry with a story about water being turned into wine. In the early church, divisions were formed not around issues that separate us today, but rather around theological matters that determined with whom the faithful should eat. And here in the Gospel of Matthew, in this story of the feeding of the 5,000 plus, we read about the one miracle of Jesus that's recorded in all four of the Gospels, and it's a miracle dealing with food. As miracles go, this one's pretty spectacular. It's no mean trick to feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Maybe that's why all four of the Gospels have recorded it. But I wonder if it was really the spectacular that was so memorable, or whether it was something else. Jesus' miracles rarely draw attention to themselves as amazing stunts, but instead usually point to something else, something more. And what could that be? The presenting issue here is hunger. It's late in the day. Folk have been following Jesus all day. And, it's been, and he has been busy healing them and teaching them. Whatever else he was, the crowds found in him something worth spending the whole day with. Something different in any case, something out of the ordinary. And now at the end of the day, they were hungry. The disciples' response to this problem is to offer a market solution. Let them go into the villages, buy food for themselves. Actually, that may not be such bad advice. It honors their agency, might well serve to support the local economy. 5,000 customers showing up is not something to be sneezed at. In the real world, in a fallen world of limited resources, this does not seem to be such a bad solution. 
But it's not the one that Jesus pays any attention to. His his response is impossible, ridiculous, oblivious in the face of real need. You give them something to eat, he tells his disciples. What do you mean? We don't have anything, or rather we have only five loaves and two fish. What's that in the face of such such massive need? Give me what you have, Jesus tells him. And he blesses and breaks the loaves and gives them to the disciples who like good Meals on Wheels volunteers distribute the food until everybody's had enough and more than enough. Now here is something strange. Jesus' economy is different. One must be careful here not to spiritualize this story and turn Jesus into some kind of utopian idealist or religious magician or pious evangelist who can afford to ignore the hard realities of life. A person who died on the cross does not ignore the hard realities of life. The feeding of the 5,000 is not a political program or economic solution. But what it is is a sign of another economy at work in our lives, an economy that's so much more real than the real world we're so determined to respect. In Jesus' economy, what sustains life, what feeds hungry people, is the self-giving grace of God. Market solutions, however valuable we may think them, are of little help here. They may lead to full employment, abundant supplies, even great wealth. But they cannot feed a hungry heart or provide a reason to live or to love or give or forgive. Great wealth can destroy a family as easily as poverty does. Free markets do little to hold a marriage together to help a struggling child, to give hope to a despairing soul. There has to be another economy at work to satisfy that kind of hunger. There's a scene in the Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, in which Clarence, the guardian angel, is drying out with George Bailey in the watchman's office after having been saved by George from drowning in the river at Bedford Falls. At one point, George Bailey tells Clarence his problem. He's out 8,000 bucks. His savings savings and loan is going to go bust. His career is going to be ruined. His life is over. In fact, he wishes he had never been born. Clarence tells him that in heaven, they don't worry much about money. And George tells Clarence, well, down here on earth, it comes in pretty handy. (laughs) And of course, George Bailey is right. It does come in handy. But the whole point of his diving in to save Clarence is to help him see something that the missing $8,000 cannot help him see. 
to recognize an economy rooted not in dollars and cents, but in the costly gift of life, in something more expensive than $8,000, the gift of seeing one's own life as a gift. Why else would he dive into the river to save Clarence? Was it for the money? It takes a miracle for George Bailey to see that his life is wonderful, just as it does for any and all of us, just as it does to feed 5,000 with nothing but five loaves and two fish. Well, you say, that's all very nice, but you can't really count on it, can you? If you have to pay the light bill, they may not accept your story about five loaves and two fish as sufficient, much less words about the gift of life. And that's true, which is in part why you're here this morning, because it's so easy to forget about that gift. We have to hear the story again and be reminded about what is the real world. We have to learn again about being fed miraculously, receiving the miracle of the gift of life and of hope. Otherwise, by next Thursday, we will have forgotten all of that and mistaken the world of bills and payments and careers and success and failures and defeats. We might begin to think that's the real world. The good news, my friends, this morning is that it's not. The real world has a lot to do with those five loaves and two fish. The real world has to do with a wonderful life that is ours in Jesus Christ, a life we find so easy to forget. So what does that real world look like then? this strange economy of the kingdom. This may surprise you, but when I was in seminary, I took a course in preaching. <laughs> Our professor one day asked us, what other task, what other job is like preaching? I won't tell you our responses, most of which were embarrassingly forgettable, but I've never forgotten his suggested response. Preaching, he said, is like being a cook. Already I didn't like this answer, since I thought preaching was something far more elevated than that. How little did I know? But he continued, each Sunday, you're given a recipe, a piece of scripture, and it's your job to prepare a meal for those who come who are hungry, who come to be fed a nourishing meal. Now, you can't just feed them desserts, sweeties, sugar plums. They'll get diabetes. <laughs> Nor can you offer the bitter herbs of scorn and guilt. No, they've come for nourishing food, food that will give them strength for the weak, that will enable them to become what they are called to be and do. And if you can cook like that, then you'll have done well. Jesus is our cook. 
He fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. But above all, he fed them and us with himself. He is both the cook and the meal. That is what he provides at the very climax of his ministry. When there were not 5,000 souls at the table, but only 12. And to them he said, this is my body, which is for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Take, eat, drink ye all of it. The cook's meal is a gift of himself to forgiven sinners. His self-giving is the source of the real world and the source of our lives. The world in which love is not some sugary sentiment, but looks something like the cross, where faith is not some happy-faced smile, but the cheerful embrace of life that's sacrificially shared with others, where hope is not a wish, but a conviction that knows the good news of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 12 and the feeding of God's people in Sunday worship, that that's the one true thing, the one true thing in a world distracted by so many others. So my friends, today we've been invited to share the feast with the 5,000 and with the 12 and with our gracious host and our Lord Jesus Christ who insists on feeding us with the word of life, his life, the life whose love redeems the mess of our own making, making it all a wonderful life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.